You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Andrew Warner's podcast, Mixergy, is one of my all-time favorite business podcasts. And he just wrote a book that is near and dear to my heart. It's called Stop Asking Questions. It's about how interviewers should think more in terms of curiosity than questions, more in terms of conversation and how to open people up and how to get the real truth. It's about conversation and connection with other people in general. I highly recommend the book. I recommend Andrew's podcast. And if you don't believe me, check out this conversation with Andrew right now. He's a good friend and I love all his work. I'm amazed uh, that you do many of the same things I do in terms of studying interviewers. Uh, James, just curious, do you have uh, headphones? Yeah. Jay, <laughs> it's so good to see you. I've heard your voice a lot. I love that you're actually in the oh. podcast now. Yes. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I, I'm in there for a little bit sometimes. 
Just, just for fun, man. I love when they let it be awkward with you. It's so great. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> That's my strength, though. I just, I just, I like. I, I think I'm great at being awkward. Uh, yeah, but most people try to cover up the awkwardness. I love the awkwardness. <laughs> Yes, I just I just dive into it because yes, for me the like my favorite part about being funny is the awkward. Like, I like yes. to be, I like to like give the awkward. You're, you're the perfect straight man, really. Like, yes, yes, it's, it, it works perfectly, and you and you roll with the punches. It's like it works. It's like improv. <laughs> you know, the first rule of improv is to say yes and, and Jay naturally does that. Like I don't know yeah. if he ever studied improv. Jay naturally no. does the yes and. Yeah, because I think it's funny because I, I think my philosophy of being funny, I'm, I'm not a comedian or whatever, but I just like to be funny in terms of bringing things to the next level. So you just roll with it until it gets ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. I also love that, that you got a philosophy on being funny. This is like, this is great. Are you going to be, are you going to be in this conversation too, Jay? I mean, I could. I mean, if you <laughs> Jay, want to, you but I think I just… You, Jay, just like I've done a thousand interviews on this podcast, Jay has listened to a thousand interviews on this podcast. Yes. So. yes. <laughs> thank you for the book, though. Thank, thank you so much for sending me the book, too. You bet. I'm glad that you were able to get it before today's session and been all kinds of yeah. weird delays. Jay, you got a book, too? So you sent out two books? Yeah. I don't know if I like Jay getting the book off. <laughs> yeah, I usually get stuck with the PDF one, you know? Yeah. Now I got the book, now I feel uh, fancy. So, Andrew, I don't really have a, a pre-interview. I, that's one thing that we do a little differently. I don't normally do pre-interviews unless I don't know the person and then there's a little bit of like a warming up period. But uh, I do, actually, we're, we're recording now. I always appreciate, how, and I'll do a whole thing in the intro, but I, I do appreciate always how when I go on, I, I, you've interviewed me, I think, four times. And at least three of them it was was uncomfortable in the sense that, you know, we, there's the pre-interview where you kind of figure out where the edge is that you're willing. It, it, you, you say beforehand, "Hey, is it okay if I ask <laughs> X, Y, and Z?" And I don't want to ever say no to those because I'm very open and honest about things. And uh, uh, but you always know, okay, this is the uncomfortable subject that James is going to have a hard, not a hard time with, but he's going to be, he's going to squirm a little. And I always say yes, and you do a great job. Getting right to the edge and then, you know, <laughs> pulling back before it gets, it, it never, it, there's never dangerous territory, but you pull back right before it could be, it could get heated. And so I appreciate your pre-interviews for, for doing that. But I also like how you study all, all there's several things in this book that blew my mind. Uh, and then I'm going to let you talk after that. Uh, w one is I really like, and I think this is important for any, anybody who's learning anything. I really like how you study other interviewers, which I've already said, but people don't do that. I've never met another person who studies. There's, there's many different interviewing styles and it's very hard to interview. And the art of asking questions and interviewing is important, not just for podcasts or journalism, but for in every aspect of life. And you have many examples in the book. It's so important. If you want to get good at interviewing, you've got to study interviewers. And today you can. I would find these bootlegged interviews on YouTube, download them quickly before they get taken off YouTube, and then you throw them into otter.ai where you get the transcript, and then you can go in and when you read it, you see it a whole other way. Is your goal to do this uh, for people who are not interviewing, for just conversationalists? Both. Because, you know, podcasters listen to podcasters, so I assume I have podcasters in the audience. But also, I really do think like my life has changed 
as yeah. I got better at interviewing. In fact, I've, I've moved quite a bit over the years and, and now my wife even knows, Oh, he's a, she has to say, say he's a podcaster. Cause I'll start, I'll get really curious and I'll start asking questions and I get into that mode and I'm sure yeah. you do as well. I, I see from your examples, you have a lot of personal examples where I see. So even in your book suggests that this is an important skill for an individual, whether or not they're a professional interviewer, but yeah, you study interviewers. I also, it, it, you say something very interesting, which I've really adapted as my own style as well, which is you have to put, as the interviewer, you have to put your own needs first as well. Like I'm interviewing you, not because, oh, I want Andrew Water on my podcast and it'll get a lot of views and blah, blah, blah. And I'll ask him about his book. I'm interviewing you because I want to know your experiences with interviewing. You've done more than me and, and you have a perspective and I want to be better at what I do. And I also want to be better at personal conversations. And this is, you're an expert and this is a book about it. So I'm putting my needs first, but I know it will help the listeners because I know how this has helped me in my life. So I like that you mentioned that. And third, you say something really important that every podcaster should pay attention to. This is mostly for the podcasters out there. Superstar guests are sometimes not, or often not the best guests. This is yeah. extremely important insight. And you only realize that after a couple hundred episodes. So let's start, let's actually, and then there's a lot of other things in the book I want to get okay. to, which is your actual techniques for interviewing. But superstar guests, I agree. If you have like the latest billionaire with a book out, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but they don't really get the downloads. And why do you think that is? It's because they're everywhere and because there's nothing special about them. I gave the example in the book about how I interviewed the founder of Riot Games. They make League of Legends incredibly successful, right? More people watching their competition than I think watching the Super Bowl. And still, the download numbers really weren't big. It's because when I went back to YouTube to see how many people had interviewed them, I think it was, here it is, 660,000 mentions of interview and the and the name of the founder is too many. Meanwhile, I interviewed this guy, Andrew Burnett Thompson, who on his train ride into work was on a laptop studying how to code, figuring out what to make, realizing that it's hard to make charts. And so he says, you know what? It's hard to code charts. I'll be the guy who creates charts for developers that they could incorporate into their software. And then his interview blows up. And the reason it blows up is because I saw that he was already popular in this small subset of Twitter, this small subset of the indie hacker community. I interviewed him. There's nobody else who had interviewed him. I had a monopoly on the Andrew uh, Burnett Thompson interview. And so that's why it blows up. Wow. You know, that's an interesting way to look at it in terms of monopoly, because it reminds me of... Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, where he says you always want to be an entrepreneur in a monopoly. And he doesn't mean uh, dominating an entire industry. He just wants to make sure that whatever niche you're in or sub-niche or sub-sub-niche, it's a monopoly in that niche. Because that's yep. where you get the loyal audience, the loyal customers, and there's, no, there, there, there's nobody else that they're going to choose if they're loyal to this industry. So that's, that's interesting putting it in that context. I mean, my own experience with it is we've had the most famous people in the world on, well, let me ask you this, because this is related to my own problem. Do you ever get intimidated by some of the superstar guests? 
I do. And to me, that's not my biggest problem. When I get intimidated, I just settle back into what am I doing it for? What matters to me? And then you can see that the conversations become more real that way. Just recentering myself on why it matters. Frankly, even with you, there have been times when I've interviewed you and I felt I felt nervous and uncomfortable because there are so many eyes on you, because you are someone who's so well known, and I'd get judged based on that one interview more than with others. And I just have to settle into what. Why did you really ask him harder about. questions? He's a fucking asshole. It would be like that, yeah. It's like why did you ask him harder questions? Or I heard it before, or whatever. Um, that's not my biggest challenge. My biggest challenge now that I'm looking back on it is more like, how many people was I intimidated by? after the interview that then held me back because of that? How many people did really well and because, I don't know, because they did so well, I was intimidated to make more progress in my life and because I was comparing every little step to what they did. You know what I mean? Wow, that's interesting. So, uh, give me an example of that. And, and, and you know, and I, uh, you interview entrepreneurs, so uh, they're, they're people more in our community, people more like us. So maybe it is easier to compare. Like if I'm interviewing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I'm not saying, boy, why couldn't I have been more like him? Right. I'm not seven right. foot two. You know, it's it's someone like uh, Noah Kagan runs AppSumo where they sell software for discounted prices. He's a regular guy. I wouldn't, I'm not intimidated to talk to him because I talked to him already. He's a friend. It's in the aftermath that I think, ooh, he's at $100 million in sales. He's got all these different growth uh, projects. And then I'll have a small thing like, well, I want to promote my book a little bit more. I go, ah, this seems like such a small book promotion. And without noticing it, I hesitate. And that's a big issue that I, I have to be aware of and not compare myself to other people. Um, and that's that's harder to notice that I'm doing, frankly. That That is a good observation. I had this conversation once with, with Ryan Holiday and he made an interesting mm -hmm. question and let, let's use Noah Kagan as example. Noah has been on several times. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been on his podcast. He's a great guy. Everybody should follow Noah Kagan. Uh, the question is, would you, if you had the choice, would you actually trade places with him? Would you become Noah Kagan instead of Andrew Warner? I'd love to say yes, because I think it would make it more interesting that I get that vulnerable. <laughs> but no, I did get comfortable in my own skin at some point in my life, and I'm not looking to trade with anybody. See, that's a good question to ask and answer. Like if you're, it, you know, ultimately you could admire some things that they've done, but if you're, you know, obviously you're not willing to trade, you, you've done it just right the way you, you've done it the Andrew Warner way, which you're obviously happy with. So, you know, even if it has its own ups and downs. And Noah certainly has his ups and downs as well. Oh, I can see it. Um, so we talked about how smaller guests can deliver more traffic, but I have to give a lot of credit to the bigger name guests for giving us credibility, right? When you interview somebody who is a billionaire, when you interview somebody who's well-known, some of their credibility comes back to you. And then also some of it is just personal enjoyment. Like in your interview with Robert Greene, there's a part of you that was really absorbing his books. You picked up on the little nuances of the changes in the way that he's written over the years. As a reader, you want to ask about that, but you don't get that right as a reader. As a human being, as a student of life, you want to ask about that. You don't get that. 
But as an interviewer, you can say, hey, Robert Greene, I've got an audience. Would you like to do a podcast? And frankly, even if you don't have an audience, it's Robert Greene. I've got a podcast. Would you do an interview with me? A lot of times a person would say yes because they either want to practice for other podcasts, because they have no sense of how big your interview is. A lot of times they just say yes because they just want some of their good stuff put out in the world without having to sit down and write a blog post. And so we have that incredible reach. Who's someone who you reached out to just because you selfishly wanted to connect with them? Robert Greene's a great example. Mm -hmm. You know, Robert Greene's one of my favorite writers. Uh, Tim and Tim O'Brien have both been on the podcast, uh, and I just love their writing and and. I'm just like a, 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 I nerd out and like just, I, I almost don't even care about the audience and I just want to know everything they know about writing. And that's where the self-interest comes in. Look, uh, Judith Polgar was a reach and, you know, I practically begged her to come on the podcast and she did. So I was very excited about that. But almost all of my guests are on because I'm a fanboy of, of what they do. I'm a fanboy of Mixergy. So this is, this is an honor for me. And, uh, but, but, you know, sometimes you make a good point. Like sometimes the, the big name guests, they have very special stories, but their stories have been everywhere. And right. some of our best, most unique stories have been with unknowns. Like we had a guy, Craig Stanland, who, uh, had been in jail for a while and talked about his experience. Like you felt it moment by moment, the fear as the police were approaching him mm. and, and it was just great storytelling. I don't even know if the podcast did well or not, but that's on the podcast side, but it's a, it's a good observation that people should know is that you're right. The superstars lend credibility, lend authority, mm -hmm. but good storytelling trumps everything. Can I give a tip for how to get the superstars? Yeah, let's go for it. This came to me when I had a friend who, who was friends with the daughter of a billionaire. I forget the guy's name even. That's how long it's been. And I thought, all right, I'm going to get him on because my friend knows his daughter. I met his daughter. She said, sure, I'll help you with, I'll help you get an interview with my dad. And the interview didn't come through. Meanwhile, this guy, Gregory Gallant, got an interview with him. I go, what the, why? why? Who's Greg? Why Gregory Gallant doesn't have any connection to this guy? And it turns out Gregory Gallant just asked for the interview a few weeks before me when this billionaire was trying to promote his book. And in that moment, the guy was going to say yes to anything. He was in book promotion mode. He's got like a couple of weeks of promoting the book. He'd say yes to anything and anybody. Yes, he even went to a local, local bookstore and he did a reading there. Um, and I noticed that was a difference, that there are times where I call it a motivated moment where people are just motivated to say yes to you. And that means motivated to say yes to a podcast, even with a small podcaster, because they're in promotion mode. And motivated moments are for books. They're authors who have motivated moments. When I interviewed uh, Justin Kahn, the founder of Twitch, it was because he hadn't, he wasn't talking about Twitch. He just launched a little company called Exec and he wanted to get people to use it and he had no users. And so he said yes to doing an interview with me. Those motivated moments are huge and they even go outside of podcasting. I came to Austin, Texas from San Francisco, and this guy said, Andrew, if you ever want to get to know the place, just let me know. And I followed up with him right away. I said, how about we have dinner? Let's go talk. And when we sat down, he said, Andrew, you don't know me. I could be a serial killer. Why'd you say yes to, to having dinner? I said, I just moved into Austin. I want to get broad perspectives on the city. I'm going to say yes to a lot of different things. And so they're motivated moments in life. And if you want somebody to say yes to you, you look for those moments when there's a big change when there's a thing that's happening that they need help with. And that's big. And 
that's a reason why people say yes to me in interviews. And that's a reason why a lot of uh, people get yeses. So, so two things. One, um, do you know Dan Jobble? Mm -mm. Okay. So every month he sends a spreadsheet of every author that's like kind of in our space, mm -hmm. in our universe, who is, has a book coming out in the next three or four months and the publication day and who their publicists are. So, you know, exact, it's a list of everybody, uh, like you're on the list this month. So, okay. you know, you, you get a, you, Eric Schmidt's on the list, the former CEO of Google, who we're all going to have mm -hmm. on the podcast. So there's usually like 50 to hundred names on it. And, and it's great. The other thing is, is that you can also, I agree, it's great to have the motivated moments and I'm always on the watch for those, but you can also create the motivated moments. How? Let's say somebody's running for office and mm. probably a lot of people are asking to interview them, but you could say, listen, in your city that you're running for mayor on, there's a specific issue with education and I want to, I want to discuss this issue anyway, and I would love to talk to you about it. It would be a way to get your views out on education. So he might not have known he, everybody else interviewing him might say, oh, I want to interview you. You're running for governor or mayor or whatever, but I'm creating the moment he can talk about something that no one's asked him about. And he yeah. hasn't even thought about it. So you can create those, those moments, or you can say, you should write a book about X, Y, and Z. I'd love to learn more about it. You're the expert come on and we can even figure out if you should write a book or not. I think that I always think about motivated moments is where is it when somebody's already looking to say yes, but you're right. I like when people get to create those kinds of opportunities. Like it, it, this works again in career. Like it makes me think of back in 2002, I wrote to a, a writer and I said, here's 10 ideas for stories you should write. And he wrote back and said, how about you write them for my publication instead? So by creating uh, an opportunity where nothing exists, like I couldn't just write to him and say, Hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Cause he would ignore that by creating an opportunity where there was none, there was, it became material for us to talk about and even do business on. So let me ask you, when did you start studying interviewers and what, and who are your favorite interviewers? I, I'd love to compare notes on this. I grew up as a kid listening to Howard Stern. And I couldn't believe that he could get people to say so much and to have conversations with them about such open things. When he, when he talked about how shy he was or how introverted he was. And so I would listen to him a lot and start to pick up on some of the things that he said, like he would say something. Um, if you wanted to ask someone something super personal, he would say, I forget the exact version, but I've copied it and adjusted it to say, is it inappropriate to ask you? if you lost your virginity to him, you know, like, is it inappropriate to ask you is a way of basically deflecting from the actual question, but giving yourself an opening to ask that. I love that chapter of the book. You call that the, I think you call it the double barrel question. Yeah. That's where one of the uh, people that I studied with interviewing said that if you ask two questions at the same time, people are going to pick the easy one to answer. I said, oh, that's kind of what Howard Stern is doing. That kind of is what I could do if I want to ask a tough question. And sure enough, it works really well. So, so tell me how it works. Because this one actually at first threw me off a little bit. Is it good because if they don't want to answer the tough question, they don't have to say no to you at the very least? They get to answer. So I'm basically asking two questions. I think a good way to, add, to show this is to talk about the founder of um, Zendesk, where he kept talking in the interview and I've got a clip of this. He kept talking in the interview about how sometimes you have to work so hard 
that you sacrifice your family for the job. And in the interview, you hear me ask him, is it inappropriate for me to ask you if you're still with your wife? Now, if I come out and say, are you still with your wife? It's super personal for him, especially if what he seems to be telling me is that he lost his relationship over this, right? And some people, most people are not like you, James. They close off when you get super personal because they want to protect themselves and all future questions are seen as a potential danger to their personal privacy. So they don't answer it. So with him, what I said was, is it inappropriate to ask you if you're still with your wife? And he said, yeah, it is inappropriate to ask me. And so you can see in the transcript, I tell him something personal about myself, and then we shift into what he tweeted about a book that he loved, and he starts to smile, and you can see it on camera, frame for frame, everything play out. And the reason that he said, yes, it is inappropriate is because I gave him the opportunity to answer that question. Ostensibly, the question is, is it inappropriate to ask you if you're still with your wife? Think about the difference between that and are you still with your wife, which seems very confrontational, which then sets him up in his mind to say, Andrew's going someplace where I don't know that I want to go with him. And throughout the rest of the conversation, I better watch out because he might ask me something super personal later on. I'm, you know? I'm wondering if the wording though, like why do you use the wording inappropriate as opposed to, are you comfortable talking about your relationships? And then he might say like, when, when someone says, yes, it's inappropriate. I, you, you, sometimes you could take that as an insult depending on their tone. Well, I, I think what I've, first of all, I could rephrase that in lots of different ways. Yeah. Do you feel comfortable talking about what happened with you and your wife? It's totally fine. It's basically two questions in one. One is, can I ask you this thing? And the other is, here's this thing. And the reason that I want this thing, the real question to be super clear is because if they are comfortable answering it, I want them to answer that question clearly. And again, in the book, I've got examples because I've got 2,000 interviews that I recorded on Mixergy and I have transcripts for it. I could go back when I was writing the book and find it in transcripts. I would ask someone a question like, is it inappropriate to ask you how much money you made with the business? If they don't think it's inappropriate, I want them to answer the question, how much money did you make with the business? I want them to give me that super clear thing. I don't want to ask, is it inappropriate to ask you about money from your business? Because then it's a they then say, no, it's not inappropriate. And I've got to ask them the question. I want them to go to that if they're willing to ask, answer it. You know what? I, I, you're, you're right. And I realize a couple areas where I've probably missed out because I did not use that phrasing. So for instance, I was interviewing uh, Ray J, uh, who the, he's a rapper or R&B guy, and he's famous for his Kim Kardashian sex tape. And I was told beforehand, he'll talk about anything. And so, but it, in the conversation, I kept kind of edging closer to it, but I kind of sense he wasn't going right. there. But if I had just said, isn't it, hey, would it be inappropriate for me to ask you about Kim Kardashian? It, it would have been, that question's fair game. You're right, because, because I'm really just, hands, ostensibly I'm asking the easier question. And as it turns out, we just never talked about that. I would even go and say, is it inappropriate to ask you and then ask a specific question about that? Is it appropriate to ask you if you regret making that sex tape? Mm. Something like that gets him to start talking specifically about the question that you really want answered, but also giving him an exit, giving him a way to naturally say, yeah, I don't feel comfortable saying anything about that. And if you let people do that, they trust you for other questions. And if you want to go super personal with people, you need them to keep on trusting you and not feel like talking to you is full of landmines. And so little touches like that are a huge help.
And you're right. Howard Stern does do that. And then what yep. I find fascinating is if someone says, and I've, I've read through transcripts of his interviews and they're again, like a, a textbook on interviewing. If someone says, yes, that's inappropriate. Five minutes might go by, 10 minutes might go by, but then he'll say something again, like, oh, come on, you know, are you sure yes. we can't <laughs> talk about your virginity? Because if it didn't happen with this guy, it happened with that guy. And, uh, you know, he starts making a joke about it too. And finally, they just all melt and talk about whatever he wants them to talk about. Like he's a genius. He does keep pressuring and he does keep pressuring. You know what else he does that is helpful? He will throw out a crazy, a crazy answer on your behalf. So it might be like, so when did you lose your virginity? And if you say, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about it. Go at 21. And first go, not at 21. It was at 17. I wasn't that long. Or he might go something yeah. really outrageous, like at 30. And then you see that the person is responding with anger towards the question. And with that anger and fire, they reveal more than they might, might reveal otherwise. And that happens a lot too. Yeah, that's a, that's a anchoring bias. So he'll say something ridiculous so that every other possible answer they could give actually seems safe to them. So it's like if you ask your boss for a raise and he says, well, what were you thinking? And you say, oh, you know, a million dollars a year. And it's a joke, but now going from 60,000 uh, yeah. to 70,000 doesn't seem like such a big deal. So uh, uh, at least in their mind, it's a, it's a cognitive bias. So what do you think of Larry King's approach where he does not research the guests at all? You know, when he did do, when he was alive and he was doing a show, he doesn't research the guests at all with the idea that he's approaching it almost the way the audience is approaching it, like completely without knowing anything. I think there are a couple of things that I would say about that. First of all, I think he does more research that's passive than most people realize and that he gives himself credit for. He's constantly was absorbing the news. And so he wasn't walking into an interview with Al Gore completely clueless about who Al Gore was. But I think there are times when you miss opportunities to go deeper when you when you don't have a little bit of backstory, when you don't have a little bit of research, where you can say, oh, this person's answered this question a million times, but he didn't say anything specific about this follow-up. Um, and the example I gave in the book is this um, interviewer who interviewed um, Derek Sivers and all, and he said to him, what'd you do with the money that you made from selling CD Baby? And Derek Sivers said, well, I, I put it into this nonprofit that helps people with music. And the interviewer goes, oh, you're so amazing. I want to hug you. I go, well, Derek Sivers is known for that. Dude, if you would have read his blog post, you would see that that's one of the things that he was talking about a lot. I think a much better question would have been the one that I asked, which is, I see that you put the money in this nonprofit that helps musicians, but you also get to take, what is it, 5% out of the business every year? So basically, you get to not pay any taxes, but you get to take a lot of the benefit of the business. And then he started talking about how he structured that. And to me, that's much more interesting and useful than getting him to reveal something that he'd revealed a million times and being, aw, shucks, I can't believe that. The depth is, I think, what we want. What we want to know is something a little bit more than they, than they would reveal on their own. Otherwise, let them go write a blog post. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world 
is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like, if you're hiring for your business, You want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter. And... I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast and the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. What do you do in a situation where somebody's already answered 
a question a million times in a row. Like you mentioned with David Rubenstein from the Carlisle Group, that he's already answered like, you know, a billion times how he started the Carlisle Group. And he's not, it's not even the thing that he's the most passionate about right now. He has, he wrote, right. just wrote a beautiful book, The American Experiment. But you still feel like you have to ask it because the audience does want to know that. It's the largest private equity group in the world for in this particular case. I, then I just ask it. At some point, we are kind of talking to an audience of people who need it. And I think it's helpful. But if you look at the interview that I did with him, I asked him about some of those tough questions. But I also said to him, truthfully, I don't care enough to go any deeper than this on your experience with the Carlisle Group. But what I did ask him was, why is a guy who is now a billionaire who started this incredibly successful private equity company doing interviews with his time? Doing, and yet he, he reads the books, he spends time on it. And he talked about how much he loved doing interviews. And when you think about that, this thing that he's getting to do when he could do anything, you think about how many people are listening to us who don't record a podcast, don't do interviews, don't, I'm not saying they should be as big as you, James, you really, you nailed it with your podcast. I'm not saying they need to be as big as you. I'm just saying, do it, do it even on a smaller scale. We now have this precious opportunity as human beings, to get to tap into people who ordinarily wouldn't talk to us, get to ask them anything, learn from them, that's not going to happen forever. At some point, people are going to be burned out on sitting to do interviews. We might as well catch them while they're open to it, while they're excited about it. It's a huge opportunity. You know, and uh, I also love how you, the, the, the what's your why idea, the, yeah. the, you know, because sometimes people are a little put off by questions. So you can either say, is it inappropriate for me to ask you this? And if they say it is inappropriate, you could say, well, I'm just wondering, because when I started a business, I lost, yeah. my wife and I split up. We couldn't handle it. Like I'm, I'm hypothetically saying that. But yeah. uh, A, that makes someone, put someone at ease. B, and this is where we start getting to the title of the book, Stop Asking Questions. It makes it seem more like a conversation then, like you're revealing so that they reveal. Yeah, to be able to say to somebody, I'm asking you this question because I'm trying to figure this one thing out. No human being alive could pass up on, on caring about that, about you when you're being vulnerable. By the way, you did an episode where you talked about the, I forget how many questions it was that make people fall in love with you, not deep and forever, but you know, right? They're not. Yeah. One of the things you talked about was how there's, I forget how you phrased it, but like this escalating, escalating level self disclosure. Of, right. When you, and, and you were talking about why self-disclosure matters, people care about you through self-disclosure. And it can't be this, I'm going to blurt everything out about my life, right? I'm going to tell you, hi, my name is Andrew. I've got hemorrhoids right now. I can't sit still. It's more like a little bit of escalation. So it's natural in the conversation. I think most people don't do that in interviews because they think it's not appropriate. They think it's not their place to talk about themselves. And then they ask the other person to be vulnerable and it feels so one-sided that most people won't go there. They won't be that open. They won't care about the interviewer enough to be that open. They won't have been in an environment where they could be that open. And if you want someone to be open with you, you got to go first. Yeah, no, I agree. That's very important. And that's important. Again, this is an important life skill, not just if you have a podcast. Yes, I got to jump in here. So there's this guy who, is, who I met when I was doing, I, I ran a marathon on every continent and I took my recording equipment and recorded interviews with entrepreneurs all over the world. 
And I met this guy in Singapore. He came into my office. He sat down. He watched all the interviews that I did live in person. He gave me backstory on what people were like in Singapore, how seriously they take schooling. He goes, hey, when he's mentioning that he went to school for this long, here's why that's significant here in Singapore. His mom probably took time off of work, right? And the guy goes, yeah, my mom took time off for work so I could, so I could do this. Anyway, we get back, I get back home. And he says, Andrew, one of the things that I noticed that you do is you keep asking questions and asking people why, telling people why you ask it. He goes, I tried that. I said, how do you try it? Tell me. I want to know because I'm doing this, this book where I'm writing about my techniques. He goes, I quit my job and my boss's boss, who's like a very serious Singaporean man, invites me into his office and he sits me down. He says, why are you quitting? And I tell him, and, and then I say to him, you ever just feel like maybe you should leave this company? or something like that. And the guy looks at him like, what are you talking about? How could you even bring this up to me? Very lugubrious uh, uh, boss's boss sitting across from him. And he says, well, the reason I'm asking is because I've been thinking about starting a company for so long. And I wonder, am I making a mistake leaving this business to go start this company? And his boss's boss says to him, oh, I did at one point. Then I sent my two kids to school in America and the cost was so high that I couldn't leave the company and then bring them back. It would be, it would break up their lives over there. And so I'm committed here and I'm a lifer. Ah, now I see why you want to leave. Go ahead, start this business. If it has, if it causes problems and you need to come back here, there's an open door for you. And he used the technique from an interview in his daily conversation to really go deeper than he would have otherwise. I'm 100% with you. I think most people should see us as almost these lab monkeys. We are taking on a lot of the experiments that, that would benefit them in their lives. And they, if they use some of these questions in their own lives with their spouse, with their boss, with strangers they meet, I think they're going to see a tighter relationship, tighter understanding. It's going to be like a superpower. I, I agree. It's a... Uh... It's an amazing technique. Like, you know, one thing I didn't know about you before reading this book was I didn't know you had, this is going to connect back to what we were just talking about. I didn't know you had started a company uh, and yeah. sold it. So, so before I ask about the company, when you were selling it and, and they asked the question, how much, you know, they're not going to just offer a price. They're going to say, how much do you want for your business? They're going to say, how do you value your business? And you have to give an answer. How, how do you usually answer that? Because it's related to, to this the why stuff. <laughs> um, at the time, what I said was, I want to keep all my money and I don't want to be there after a few days. And that's all I was interested at the time. And then I said, okay, let's take it from there. Um, and the reason that I did that was I was so burned out that mm. American Greetings was courting us for a while and they spent so much time like bringing me into their office, talking to me about strategy. We were doing online greeting cards. They were doing offline greeting cards, how we could work together. There's all this stuff. We still had cash on the books, like a significant amount of cash on the books. And so they said, all right, so the way we're going to do it is we're going to use your cash to buy you out. We're going to use that cash to run the business and we're going to... And I was so exhausted. I went back to talk to my brother and I said, okay, here's what we're going to, we're going to get at this exit. They're, they're following through. My brother goes, are you out of your freaking mind? They're, they're not paying you anything. I go, yeah, but it's American greetings and we're going to be part of the American greetings family. I go, you must be nuts. He was, he was my co-founder. He goes, there's no way. And I realized, oh yeah, I am clearly so down the rabbit hole with them that I can't see clearly. Mm. And so I, I knew what I needed. I needed to not be involved in any kind of work. And so 
that was my top priority. What I made a mistake with was they, they obviously they gave me more than just my own cash. Uh, when we finally did sell the company, we sold it to the company that owned uh, MySpace. What I assumed was they were also going to take on all of the relationships that we had and they didn't, they feel like, well, if the relationships are beneficial to us, we'll take them on. If not too bad, tell, we'll tell them to go pound sand. And so then after I came out of burnout mode, I made phone calls to hundreds of affiliates that were all supposed to be like partners of ours. And I said, how are things? Tell me how you're doing. And I sent them all checks out of my own cash just to say that you guys were part of our part of our company. I didn't think that I needed to say to like save some part of the deal for you. And so I'll I'll make sure that I pay you personally. And so I sat down and I just paid and paid and paid. What's an example of an affiliate? Like, why were these people so close to your business? Oh, that I've actually interviewed of people who now who were kids who are affiliates making tons of money, who were um, who now have gone on to do great great things. Like Shane Snow, he goes, oh, I know you. you used to send me checks. So here's what we did. We did online greeting cards, but what we would do is just power other people's online greeting cards. And so someone like Shane Snow, he was sitting at home creating these greeting cards, which looked fun or interesting or whatever, mostly to middle America, you know, like older people who wanted to say happy Monday to their kids, whatever. So he would make the greeting card, but he didn't know how to code software. So he would just say, he would use us to turn a web page that he made into a greeting card so that someone who liked his web page could press a button, come to our site, address the greeting card, address the page to their family, and then hit send, and we automatically send that page that he made to his uh, to their family. And the way that we would pay him is we would also have a few check boxes on there. So um, anyone who sent out one of his greeting cards would be asked, do you also want to sign up for a trivia day email list? Do you also want to find out about the news, whatever? Anyone who left that checkbox pre-checked would get subscribed to those email newsletters, and we would get paid like a buck fifty per checkbox that was pre-checked, and we paid him a quarter. So it was a nice little uh, business that way. He wouldn't have to do any coding, just have to create great greeting cards. We would make them viral. We would make sure he got paid. Um, That's incredibly these, valuable. These are, are Incredibly they still, valuable. Is, this, is the site still running? Is it, did American Greetings keep it running? No, so we didn't sell to American Greetings. We sold to the company that owned MySpace. They kept it running for a very long time. They also kept running our, uh, we had an online contest site. It was called grab.com, offered the world's first billion-dollar jackpot. They kept that running, and then they turned it into a general gaming site. Then they must have sold it to someone who sold it to uh, the, the everything app in Southeast Asia called grab.com. Why, why do you think, um, you know, burnout's a real serious issue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I heard recently it's also been included now as a, in the, the DSM, whatever the latest. Really? Of it. Yeah. So it's like a, a okay. mental disorder and uh, which I've suffered from often. And Me too. Why do you think you were going through burnout there? Because it sounds like a, a business that runs itself to some extent. Um, I think... I, I hit burnout too quite a bit in my life, um, and I do think it's serious. And if you want to see how serious it is, the fact that I was going to sell to American Greetings, my company, and give them all the cash that's in the bank, and like, what am I getting? And then commit to working for them was basically the stupidest decision. You have to be out of your freaking mind to do that, right? It's like some people who will have sex with strangers who they have no affection for and don't want to be with them because they're like going through some traumatic issue. I do that it's every like time I'm burned decision. out. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Do you? <laughs> no. I wish. No, um, and I definitely don't wish. But it's it's a real issue that um could could cause terrible life decisions. Um for me, I was burned out because I was I had nothing else in my life except for work. And then I also feel burned out whenever the results that I get are are less substantial. So I had nothing else going on for me in my life except for work. So if work was suffering, I felt I was a failure. We went from doing two plus million dollars a month in revenue to doing half a million a month. And I felt like such a failure. Half a million a month in revenue is is the end of the world to me, I felt. Like well, this why did is it go down a like loser. That? Um, the internet bubble burst. A lot of the companies that were buying from us had closed up. They took a lot of our debt uh, with them, so they owed us money. Others just needed to reduce their expense. And so I took my self-worth a lot from how much money I made. That hurt me in addition to being exhausted and not having anything else in my life that that revived me. And and you've done 2,000 of these podcast episodes of, of Mixergy. Have you ever come close to getting burnt out there? I am not burned out on interviews now, but I'm burned out on the business now. I'm burned out on the business decision-making. And so I love having the conversations. I love doing interviews. Um, I just did an interview recently where I told the person I was burned out and we spent time talking about it. And I happen to know him. This is Will Schroeder who bought Zirtual, the virtual assistant company and a bunch of other companies. Um, and I'd known him for over a decade. And I said, I'm just going to talk to you about burnout. I'm feeling burned out. And the reason that I don't get burned out on interviews is I get to bring it back to what I care about. I get to actually have somebody think through what I care about or what I'm passionate about. It's it's a gift. It's and, like people and, are never going to be burned out on watching YouTube videos. If the YouTube videos are good, same thing here. I get YouTube videos that are customized to me. But but I get it though about being burned out on the business aspects. Like podcasting, I'm not even quite sure it's meant to be a business unless you're like a Joe Rogan or whatever, where he's making, you know, a hundred million dollars. Like it's a hard business and you have to find advertisers and advertising is not always the best business model. Uh, but what, what burns you out about the business? Um, it was that I didn't start out wanting to just be a podcaster. I, I, I started out with this idea that I would figure out the model, but the model eventually became how do we do online courses? Kind of like Skillshare, I thought, where I hated that people who were teaching didn't do jack. They were just good at teaching. And the people who were great had no time to teach or they were just awful speakers. And I said, I could turn people into better presenters. I, I would see it when I volunteered at Dale Carnegie and Associates to teach. We would take these people who were engineers who hated being there. They were only there because it would get them a higher salary bump. Um, and they hated talking to human beings. And we would make them into these articulate speakers who in two minutes could deliver a persuasive talk. It was amazing to watch these transformations. I said, if I could do that with them, I could do it with entrepreneurs and then with other people and I could help them teach what they do well. And so we did that and um, it, it went well. I think within a year, within six months, it did like 40,000 a month in revenue, but mm -hmm. I could never get it to be really big in a standalone business. And I think I was talking with Justin Mayers, the creator of Kettle and Fire, just the other day. And I told him that that's what's going on with me, that I was disappointed that I couldn't make it bigger. And he goes, but did you ever try to make it in? Did you ever try to create um, a course site where I go, I did. And it's so interesting that he didn't know that I was doing that. 
even though he'd been interviewed by me, even though he found his co-author and Gabriel Weinberg of DuckDuckGo because he heard Gabriel Weinberg on my podcast. And then he reached out to him and said, Gabriel, you can't write your book. I'll write it with you. And they wrote a book together. So he was in my world. He was in my house. One time Olivia walked into our house and she sees him and me making chocolate in our kitchen. So he's not like a stranger. And I realized maybe I shouldn't have put it under the Mixergy brand, which is the brand of the podcast. And I could have done it as its own standalone site. Anyway, so when you're talking about burnout, it's it's from, oof, I didn't get the results I wanted. And I think I want to just spend some time stepping back and seeing why. Maybe, you know, one, one thing I've been wondering is, and, and we've been doing this a little with the podcast, is experimenting with formats. So sometimes I interview someone like, you know, this interview here. Sometimes my wife's on and we just explore an issue. Yes. Uh, you know, so I've been doing... I've been doing like, I've been experimenting with three or four different formats and that kind of always uplifts me. Sometimes also, like you said earlier, you, you didn't necessarily mean to be a podcaster, like capital mm -hmm. P, like that's, you, you You know, when I, when a lot of people think of you and they think of Mixer G, they think Andrew Warner is a podcaster, but a podcaster is interviews people who do things and then there's the podcaster. And sometimes I get right. it mixed up in my head. It's almost as if, like I'm not doing anything. I'm just doing these interviews. And so every now and then too, it's good to mix it up and try to do something. So I find I get burnt out if, um, if I feel like I'm not the doer, I'm just the interviewer. Yeah, I'm never, I've never been one who is good at people watching. I love people, but I have to be interacting. I'm not stepping back and watching the world unfold before me. I need to be in the thing. So I did this side podcast. I've been interested in BitClout. It's this uh, cryptocurrency community, decentralized social network thing. It's like all of it wrapped up in one. And one, I wanted to understand it better and I said, oh, podcast for sure. I'll interview the people who are big on that platform to understand how they're like getting to getting coins minted for them as soon as they join, what they're doing with it, where the money is, where the creativity is. I did it. And I, I'm definitely learning a lot from it. But one of the things that I did that's different than I did at Mixergy is I said, every episode, I will, I will do something with what I learn. So I have to challenge myself to take some kind of action at the end of an episode, and then we'll see what happens. And some of them have been a pain in the but like really, James, I interviewed one of the top developers on it, the guy who goes by Mubs. And at the end of the conversation, we, we talked about how NFTs could become real world like things. And we, I, I think we picked a stupid idea and it's just exhausting me. He said like, for example, you could sell an NFT on BitClout and then anyone who owns it could get a record Go like a physical vinyl record? Yeah, Jay just gave us this look, your producer. He's like, what the? Yeah. So now I, I took his interview because of that and I turned it into a vinyl record, which will be showing up in my Airbnb within the next week that I could then give to anyone who buys this NFT of the episode. Stupid idea, but at least I'm doing something and it's taking me another two weeks after the episode to do it. Bad idea, I think, before I fully like gotten through it, I can say that's a terrible idea. I'll say on a macro point of view, it's not a bad idea because A, you learned about NFTs by making right. one. Uh, so there, right. there's, that's, your, that's your downside. That was your worst case scenario is you would just learn something. B, right. uh, you probably learned about vinyl because I have no idea how to put <laughs> music on a vinyl piece of plastic or whatever. I could show you. And, uh, and, and the other thing is there's an interesting nuance there that people don't realize about NFTs that I'm starting to appreciate. 
an NFT is not art, it's a ticket. And right. it, it buys you access to a bunch of things. It might be art, but it might be a record or it might be they get a phone call with you if they have an NFT of- Can I give you a great one? Yeah, tell me. So with every one of them, there was some kind of experiment. And one of them I said, what if I run an ad in every one of my future episodes of BitCloud Jam? I'm going to sell an NFT that's a forever ad. Whoever holds it from here to eternity, as long as I'm doing this podcast, whoever holds it at the time that I'm recording the podcast, I will mention on the podcast. So that I is a great sold idea. It, right? It's just a mention, not a full ad, actually. It's just a mention. This is a small community. It's one of the smallest cryptocurrencies out there. It's called now it's called DSO, the cryptocurrency. The bidding just started at 100, 200, hundreds. One of the investors in DSO, the original uh, investors, came in and he bid it up. Uh, Dharmesh Shah, the, the, now he's, he's the creator of HubSpot. He was in there bidding and bidding and bidding it up. He came in second place with $10,000 bidding on this mention of a small mention in a small podcast about a small community. But here's the beauty of it. Now, the person who holds it, it's called the Creator Fund, they get to get a mention. But now because they hold it and becomes more valuable as my podcast gets more valuable, I could reach out to them and say, who do you think I should interview next? What do you think I should do with this? Where do you think this should go? They have a vested interest. They get mention, mention, mention. And then if the podcast grows and if they help, it will grow. Then they have something they could sell in five years that's worth more than they paid for it after getting. That's beauty. And I wouldn't have come to that if not for the interview. Of course. I, I love this idea. How can I make uh, an NFT that's essentially a forever ad on this podcast? You should do it. Forever ad, it's a little bit dangerous. People kept saying, Andrew, what if you just sell a, one, just sell a bunch of NFTs for your podcast ads and they'll get like one, one mention for everyone who owns it. I don't want that. I want a thing that you can't do otherwise. You could sell one mention on with just a Stripe page. You can sell a forever mention that people can go and trade without your knowledge, without an NFT. So I think you could do it. You could do it on OpenSea. I minted one on OpenSea with, uh, on Ethereum. Uh, you could do that and you could you could sell it. And it's an exciting experiment because now there's something meaningful that you could learn from it. Yeah. I, I think you should absolutely do that. I love it. And so that came from you engaging in these Doing discussions the about NFTs. Yeah. So that's that's yep. great. So so then so you 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 had this business, you sold it. Is it inappropriate for me to ask how much money did you ultimately sell it for? <laughs> Um, I promised my brother that I wouldn't say and for the, the company that I wouldn't say because I don't want him being valued by this a lot. I'll be honest with you and say it wasn't a bunch. I told you that before what was more important to me was that we get to keep our own get to keep our own money. It was a profitable business that even in its smaller state where I thought we were a failure, we were still we were profitable. Yeah, helped. I mean, half a million a month in revenues is still good. Like even if during the internet bust when all your customers were probably going out or all your affiliates right. were going out of business. So, so that's good. And then, but I forget who, who's, when, when did you start Mixergy? It was in uh 2006 ish. Yeah. So you've been around for a long time. That helped You're, being around early really helps. Was that, was this your first experience interviewing was Mixergy? Yeah. I, I'd never done any interviews before. I always wished that I could ask people about their lives. I always wished, you, you know, you ever go to somebody's house and you go, how did they get this rich that they could get this house? Yeah. It's like that. 
Yeah, and that always fascinates me as well. My my first interviewing job was in the mid '90s, and I just loved mm-hmm. it. And I've always loved I've always loved interviewing. So, What'd you do it? Uh, I was at HBO, and I did a project for them. It was a, a, a web it was a web show called Three AM, and I'd go out at three in the morning on a Wednesday night, like kind of an obscure night, and ask anyone I wanted to, "What? Why the hell are you out at three in the morning on a Wednesday uh-huh. night?" And oh, wow. it was fascinating. So I, I did, I probably did several thousand interviews that way, but it took me a while to, to find my voice on the podcast. I think I was very nervous when I started the podcast and I was intimidated by my, my guests and it's, it's, mm. it's, it's hard. Like, what do you think is a bad interviewer? Like when you, you go on podcasts, how could you tell this person is just not, you kind of just want to reach out and tell them what to ask you or tell them what to do. Uh, the big one is I'm writing a book about interviewing. I'm being interviewed by new interviewers now and they just go through the motions. They go through the questions they think their audience wants asked when I think that they just, if they do that, they end up with a very generic interview. It would be much better if they said, Andrew, I'm new at this. Here's someone who I interviewed last week and nothing happened or Andrew, I'm new at this. And I feel like I'm working really hard and there's no money in this. What do I do about that? Like if they could, the only way they could make it unique is by bringing their unique perspective in and having the guts to do it. And the only way that I will have the guts to be open is if they have the guts to be open first. Otherwise, I don't know if it's a place for me to be open. Like you're asking me all kinds of personal questions here. I could do it because you've been so open. And so it feels like I could, I could get equally open, but they're not, they're just asking generic questions that are not not really helpful. Well, they think they're helpful. They they they're they're not they're not terrible. They're just not good. I I think you I think you bring up an important important point though with the the get to your why or make it about you. Yes. Like I'm asking this because uh, of X Y and Z, or I want your expertise, which is why I'm talking to you. So I I told you I was going to connect the dots on you selling your company. Mm-hmm. If I'm trying to sell a company and someone asks me, what's the value of your company? How much do you want to sell it for? I always say, listen, I'm coming to you not only to sell your my company to you, but you're the expert on buying companies. So help me, uh. what would you tell me? Help me figure <laughs> it out. So this is good in interviews and it's also good when selling. Tell me what you would, would what advice you would give me if this wasn't uh, a business transaction right now. And that's me bringing my needs into the deal. You know what else I did? I went to uh, other people who I thought should should drive up the price or buy. And I said to them, can you give me advice? This person's trying to buy my company. What do you think I should do? That's a great technique. <laughs> With Because otherwise I'm asking them, can you bid against them? And I feel more needy. And so yeah. I thought hearing that would open things up. That was helpful. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. 
Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Interviews are all about nuance. It's like listening for what the person's really saying and then kind of digging around to sort of get to it. And you bring up Joe Rogan in the book. I right now think he's the best interviewer out there because I can't really figure out how he does it. Like I can read a Howard Stern transcript and I'm seeing what his techniques are and I can see how he does it. But Joe Rogan makes everything seem like, oh my gosh, these guys must have been best friends forever and they're just chatting. And, and yet the guy's telling him everything. So what do you think Joe Rogan does? Or maybe he's just, just a natural for him. I just listened to him interview Jewel. He didn't know a lot about her life that was out there. So he clearly doesn't have a relationship with her before her sitting down. So there's a lot of him making assumptions and then her going, no, no, that's not what happened at all. Um, but what she does do is immediately get open about thinking about suicide, about thinking about how she needs to have her own self-worth and so on. I think he's just established that that show, that conversation is where you get real and people just know that that's what they have to do. And they come in there because they're hoping to and expecting to talk about these types of personal things. And I think that there's context that comes from having conversations. If you come on to Mixergy, there is no doubt that I'm going to ask you what your revenue is. There's no doubt that we're going to talk about things like, uh, um, well, I just had Salhe Lavinia on and he knew that I was going to talk to him about how Nathan Barry said that he screwed his past employees out of equity, right? There was no doubt that we were going to talk about that because that's what I've been doing for so long. And people do pick up on context that comes before the conversation starts. And so that's why a lot of people won't do interviews with me. And that's why when people do do interviews with me, they get open with that stuff. That that just happens. Um, and I think that, that that's what happens with Joe Rogan, that he's established that's where this type of thing happens. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's also got that, he's been a comedian for 20 years. Like, you know, that gives you a good read on your audience yeah. at any given moment. And, but he's just, he's, he's, I really admire his, his skills as an interviewer. I mean, look, all the people we know are very good, some better than others. I mean, and you could even have a bad techniques and pull it off. Like some people will say, well, tell me the last time, you know, you cried in front of somebody. That's a canned question, but, right. but you know, if asked, it still can be asked sincerely and could still generate interesting answers if the, if the, but the guest has to be kind of appropriate to answer that. I think Brene Brown might do that. She asks questions that are a little bit more expected. Um, and then she ends up with wooey answers because people have this sense of that's, that's where she is. You know, I will say this, here's one, one problem that I have with, with Joe Rogan. Tell me if I'm the only one who has this. He doesn't set up any context. I'm listening to him do a doc, talk to a documentarian. I still don't know what the documentary is by the end of the, the interview. I have a sense that something happened, but I don't know what. I'm enjoying the conversation, but boy, I wish you would just take a minute to say, here's this person, did this documentary on Netflix about this topic. 
Boom. Just give me some context. I think he can't do that because he, I think he deliberately doesn't set context because then that creates an us versus them situation. I'm the interviewer. Here's the documentary. Then don't keep talking about that. Don't keep talking about the documentary. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, how do I, and then I have to go through stupid Spotify's uh, listener notes on the episode, which is buried deep in their menus and figure out who the person is. And it's, it's just really painful. I listen because at the end, because regardless of whether I know the person or not, it at least is real. There's at least some real conversation there. Well, that, well, this is the whole point I feel of your title. Stop asking questions. There isn't really such a thing as an interview. There's entertainment and the entertainment <laughs> might have the format of an interview. It might have the format of comedy. It might have the format of storytelling, but you know, the whole idea is, is that we as podcasters or, or if you're, you know, if you're at a party and you're making small talk, you don't start interviewing people you have, but you have to ask questions to get small talk going and learn about people. And that's the thing. Nobody should know you're in interview mode that you're just, uh, you're having a, Joe Rogan's just like having conversations with people. He stopped asking questions. It's just, Hey, if we talk about the documentary and it comes out, so be it. Otherwise we're really about entertaining and I know you, because your, your niche is entrepreneurship and your podcast is the podcast for entrepreneurship. At the end of the day, it's still entertaining. I want to hear about the guy who first, you know, I don't know, crashed his car, was in the hospital for six months, then figured out like yeah. this thing that medical equipment that people need. And then now, you know, first month was a hundred thousand in sales and boom, off to the races. Like, but that's still storytelling. It's still entertainment, even though I'm learning from it. And it's aspirational. It is. So, and you know, I have to make sure not to be intimidated by it in retrospect, because that is this type of thing you see. And then, wow. So, so let me ask you a question. Like give, so I'm not a beginner interviewer, mm -hmm. but give me advice. What am, what am I doing wrong? Or, or not what am I doing wrong, but what can I do better? I want to be better. And I study interviewing, but I feel like you study interviewing even more. you you really take it to another level. You are the most vulnerable person that I know in public. And I think when you do interviews, your vulnerability is more about your interview style than it is about the reason that you're having the conversation. So you would be open with someone and say, I did not finish binge watching or binging your show, but not the reason that I need you here is because there's a hole in my life that I would like to help fill. And I think that if you could be more open about what you're trying to do and why, I think that it would be more naturally you, James Altucher. It would be it would be less of an interviewer and more you. And I I want more you in these interviews. I think that's I think that's a really good point. And I think that happens when I'm a little bit more intimidated by the guest. Yes. And when I get the sense that the guest is okay with it, then I feel I'm more open. But otherwise, I get nervous, and I'm a, I'm a nervous sort of person. So it, it, sometimes it holds me back. But and you do sometimes set the stage. I wish I had better examples for you or some examples, but you do sometimes set the stage with let's get into the things we need to do, like talk about the book, talk about the thing, and then you get more into what you're looking for, where by then you've established a different relationship and a different context for the interview. You have an insane vulnerability that I think I'd like to see more come out in, in the interviews. I'm always afraid to be self-indulgent though, that people might say, oh, James, we've heard all of your stories before. Let's hear Richard Branson's story just this once. <laughs> I want to hear the part of you that says, 
when you're reading Robert Greene's book, I need to stand out more. I need to have more power. And however that comes out is going to be so uniquely you that then if that shapes the conversation, it's going to be completely different from what anyone else could do. And it's going to tap into a vulnerability that none of us knew we had, but aspire to overcome. I don't know what that is. Yeah. It might be something like, you read his book and you talked and he talked about how in the 48 laws of power everyone needs to have a thing that stands out and you would like to have your own walking cane but it feels awkward and just like what do you think i could do and like can let's strategize that let's go on a mission with you james that this person is the yoda who's going to help us help us watch you get to the next stage that's the exciting part yeah that this is really good advice well look andrew once again, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. You wrote Stop Asking Questions, How to Lead High Impact Interviews and Learn from Anything from Anyone. But again, I think this book is not important just for podcasters, but it's it's really important it's really important to know how to ask questions. It's part of talking to people and part of listening to people. Like it's insanely like I bet you your personal life has upgraded since you started the podcast. <laughs> hundred percent, a hundred percent. You will suddenly see. So I went uh, miniature golfing with my kids. They, with one of my sons, we do this date night with each son separately, me and my wife, and we couldn't get into the golf place. And I say, hang on, I'll go and I'll talk to them. And I start talking to the person and then we get into the golf place, the miniature golf place, and we get in for free. And my son goes, this is what always happens with you. And he's like a seven-year-old kid. And the reason that I bring that up is that they get to see the fruits of it in daily life, that we've traveled all over and I'll talk to strangers, that they feel comfortable walking into Noah Kagan's house. And when he says, go explore my house, they don't feel the sense of outrageous shyness that I had as a kid because they've seen it modeled for them and taught how to have conversations with Noah Kagan, how to have conversations with random strangers that we meet in different countries. It's an absolute gift that gives you clear benefits in the world, like playing miniature golf when they close it down mostly because of COVID is a clear gift, but also subtle gifts like being able to be in an adult's house as a kid and see that you could fit into this world. It's absolutely been helpful outside of the podcast. Yeah, and 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 that is because the skill that you developed. But so let me ask you this, because something similar happened mm -hmm. to me. And this was this was in 2013. So it was a long time ago, or 2014. I took my kid to play ping pong at this ping pong place. We also got in for free. The place was closing, but they but they were still gonna be around. So we got in for free and we had a great time. And then I wrote about it and I talked about the process of how to ask for things like this. And then someone wrote this really hateful article about me saying I was abusing white privilege. And uh, I was just teaching my kid how to say please and thank you and, and mm -hmm. be respectful and whatever. But this article that someone wrote about me went, went viral when all I was trying to do was teach my kid how to be a nice person. Do you ever get that kind of response or reaction? I seem to get these reactions. It seems like you've been getting it more lately. Just listening to your podcast, it feels like you're feeling it more yeah. lately. Um, I don't, I just have this thing that I, I, I don't know. I, I thankfully have not gotten it, but I think they're wrong. It's not. There is definitely white privilege and other privilege. I would say that the thing that as a kid bothered me the most because I was so shy was that there's 
speak up privilege. Like if people who knew how to have conversations and talk had so much more open to them and it bothered me that I could be absolutely right. But if I couldn't argue my case as well as a classmate, then the teacher would listen to the classmate instead of me. And it bothered me that that's the way the world worked throughout. I mean, even if you take a look at our legal system, right? It's not whether you committed the crime or not. It's whether you can articulate or have somebody articulate your position better. And that seems so unfair. And if I could change that, I would change it. But I'm not changing every aspect of the world. I don't have that, that power or that passion. And so if I'm living in this world and I want to know, how can I do that? And if this person feels that they have lack of white privilege, then I think that they could look around and see that there have been people who had to overcome it. And because they overcame it, became so much more eloquent than you and I will ever be because they had so many more weights on their shoulders to lift throughout life. And I think that's the that's that's the way I would see it. Yeah, but, no, you know, I, maybe I agree. People will be upset with me for seeing it. And I love the idea of speak up privilege because it's true. The people who can yeah. speak up and do it in this nuanced way, as you describe in the book, uh, Stop Asking Questions, that is a superpower, as you said earlier. It's it's just amazing. It's amazing the changes in my life as I've become uh, you know, a better and better interviewer and as I've started really taking seriously the the study of it. But um, by the way, you know, Noah uh, Kagan's a pretty good chess player. So He was. I was over at his house and he was telling me about how great a chess player you were. And then I said... Um, I talked about how I played and these freaking guys bring out a chessboard in the middle of their Shabbat dinner. Like the whole, it doesn't matter that everyone else is doing something. They have this addiction. Yeah. So now there's a chessboard and, uh, truthfully, because I'm burned out, I've not been playing chess very well. I'm, I'm looking to chess as a way of just not thinking for a little bit. And chess is a place where you have to bring a lot of thought but it's amazing how many people are gravitating to chess lately. It's amazing how many people will, if they see a chess board, just come over. Yeah, you know, you know. How, how's your chess been going? It's been going well. You know, it's interesting. It's going really well online because that's the format I've played on for 25 years. But you know, before that, I played in tournaments exclusively. Now there's an online thing, and mm -hmm. my ratings online are very good. And but then I played in my first over the board tournament in 25 Recently, years. Right? And that was just devastation. Like that skill was, had, had rusted. I was like, not myself somehow, but, um, but what's mm -hmm. great is, you know, you learn from your failures and I've got a whole bunch of games now that are failures. And I, uh, I have like 20 pages of notes on each game that I, and I'm going through them with a, a coach. Wow. So, uh, you know, and then I have a tournament coming up in a couple of weeks now. So we'll see for the second tournament if it, if it helps. Why are you doing it? Why are you taking up chess again and going back to over the board play? Well, so that's two, two good questions. So you're interviewing me here a little bit. But <laughs> I, I think it's to what you said earlier, though, about people are gravitating towards things like chess right now because there's objective truth. Like if you and I were going to talk about um, whatever, any of the billion idiotic political issues out there that'll be gone in two weeks and there'll mm. be another set of political issues. There's no objective truth. We could just talk all day long on Facebook and Twitter and you could quote academic papers from Harvard and I'll quote academic papers from Yale that'll say the opposite and we could go on and on forever. There's no truth. And chess, there's only truth. All, everything is right there on the board. You can't hide. There's no other, well, if you only see what's happening on this other board, you would know. It's only on the board in front of you that that is the truth. And so uh, I think that's like, it, it's, just, it's almost like a weird kind of safe space 
if you get a little burnt out on all the arguing going back and forth. The second thing is, of course, is that it's just a beautiful game. It's a battle of ideas. Uh, whoever has the better ideas, uh, hopefully or usually can can win. And that's that's a very artistic and beautiful, just like art is a battle of ideas. You know, uh, cubism turns into abstract art as ideas evolve in the art world, just like ideas evolve in the chess world. And over the board play is interesting because my blitz on my online blitz play has has gotten better because I've gone back to playing over the board because you think much more intensely. So every one game is like mm. playing, you you get the thinking experience of playing like a hundred blitz games and that you then study them. So my my analysis gets much better after playing over the board games. So it does force me to think differently than I would ordinarily. Usually like in anything, I've not anything, but in a large part of my life, I think if I'm struggling, I'm just going to will myself to put more energy and make the thing happen, right? You can't get enough sales. You're going to, I'm going to make 20 calls today and make sure that I close enough sales so that I have more revenue, whatever. You could power through it. This forces you to not try to power through it and to calmly think through it. Because if somebody takes my piece and I go, I got to show them, I'm going to go take their piece and then I'm going to go and take another, right? I'm done. Yeah. You have to stop and think and it's such good training for thinking through things. It's unbelievable. And it's unbelievable, James, how many smart people play chess? Like the fact that they would bring this out at dinner showed how many people were interested in it. When I had it accidentally at uh, the cafe the other day, there was, it's unbelievable how many people saw it and then would come over and talk about chess. It's a hidden secret that we forget about because it seems so old and just not novel. There's no like chess NFT that gets you to play or something. Yeah, no, it, it, it's true. And I, I miss the, I used to play in like cafes and stuff, but of course, since the pandemic, that doesn't happen. So I, I miss that a little bit, but uh, yeah, it's it, when you're playing over the board also, this is it. There's, there's not like another blitz game you're going to play right after this. This is the game you're playing. Right. So if you're in trouble, you got to sit there and figure it out. You can't just say, well, I'll just try this and make it messy and try to checkmate him at the end. And, and then we'll play again. Like this is the game right. you're playing against this guy. You're not playing another one. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, that raises the stakes in your brain too. But Anyway, well, when when you're up to playing yep. again, well, I'm always, I'm always available. I really like giving lessons actually to to um, entrepreneurs and people I know because the, the analogies are are different than the typical chess lesson. So it's uh, it's fun to play. You're so damn good at it. I feel like if at some point you wanted to get some of this underground group of people who are into chess, I, I remember going by the way going into. Um, I was at a like an entrepreneur cruise. I go into this guy's room because he's going to get dressed and he's going to go somewhere. And he has an old waiter's like, you know, one of those notepads yeah. that the waiters used to. Anyway, I said, that's you. You infiltrate, infiltrated his brain and got this guy to think about lots of different ideas and use the exact freaking notepad that you told him about that I don't know how he got. And I, I feel like um, even with this, you might be tapping into something that if you ever wanted to do some kind of entrepreneurial chess thing, these people would like zombies rise out and go, oh, I can't believe that somebody's brought me back to life. They're out there. They're phenomenal. Chess will do it. Like it's, it's brought me back to life a little bit. So it's a good thing. But Andrew, thanks. Thanks so much again. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I was really impressed with the book. Like it, it reminded me of so many things that I just been doing myself, like in private about interviewing. And then, and again, these life skills, 
are, are you put to words also th some things I hadn't yet put to words, like the like the bring your why into a question and and things like that. Yeah. So and the double barrel question and some of these other techniques. But thanks again, and uh, always look forward to talking to you. Same here. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.